0: The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. God help us to see the truths of your gospel uh, given to us here through your servant, Paul. Help us to apply it to our lives. I pray that you would radically change us this morning. Paul continues here in our text, uh, uh, giving some more details to what it means to put off the old man and put on the new man. He continues by giving us uh, five different things. And in those five different things, he includes three ingredients of each of those five. We, We see a prohibition of sin. So this is a behavior that we should put off. We see a practical exhortation. This is a behavior that we should put on. So we have a behavior we should put off, we have a behavior we should put on, and then we have a gospel principle that should act as our motivation for these new behaviors. Why should we put off this behavior and why should we put on this new behavior? He gives a motivation for that. And so let's look at these five extremely briefly. Each one of them could be their own sermon. And so I encourage you to think about them more deeply, dig into them a little bit more, uh, with a little bit more time and concern than this morning really allows us to do. First one is this, put off deception and put on truthfulness. See this right here in verse 25. It says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Falsehood certainly speaks to lies, but this falsehood here in this text has a little bit deeper meaning than just lies. There's a little bit more to it. It also speaks of this idea of presenting yourself as something that you're not living a double life, saying one thing, doing another, presenting yourself as a better person, presenting yourself as a more wealthy person, presenting yourself as something that you're not in hopes and efforts to be deceptive, to to deceive people's thoughts about the way that you look or the way that you behave or the things that you do or your status that you've obtained. And so he says, put off deception, put on truthfulness. And the principle we see here in verse 25 is that we are members of one another. He says, why should we do this? We should do this because we are members of one another. And with being members of one another comes a truthfulness, comes a a rawness, comes an openness, comes a vulnerability that should keep us as being part of one body from putting on a front with each other. If anybody, the people that we're closely connected to in community, the people that make up this body, we should feel a freedom to really be who we are, right? But there's something inside of us that always is encouraging us or pulling us or drawing us to present ourselves as something we're not. And so we hide in sin, we uh, hide in in deception, and we put it out there as if we're better people than we really are, And, and when we do that, we hinder our relationship with one another, and we hinder the growth and the redemption that Jesus wants to do inside of our hearts as he's placed us in this body. As new creations in Christ, how are you living in a way that doesn't identify with Christ? Another deception versus truthfulness is this reality that you have been Changed, you have been made new, you have been purchased, you have been redeemed. All the blessings of God have been given to you in Christ. When you walk in ways that are according to your flesh and not of the Spirit, you're being deceptive because what you're doing doesn't really affirm or confirm who you really are, right? So, as new creations, how are you living in a way that doesn't identify with Christ? We see another principle here. We See another uh, section where we see a put off, put on, and a gospel motivation behind it. In verse 26 through 27, we see put off unrighteous anger and put on self-control. Put off unrighteous anger and put on self-control. Paul specifies here between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. He tells the Ephesian people and tells us, be angry and do not sin, right? Because and he says that because anger in and of itself is not a horrible thing. There's some anger that is necessary. There's some anger that is righteous. For instance, we should be angry at injustice. As as people of justice that have been given God's justice and given God's righteousness, we should be a people that get angry at injustice. We should get people, we should be a people that get angry at sin. And some of us are really good at getting angry at the other people that sin and the sins of other people, but we really have a hard time being angry uh, about our sin. And see, anger about sin, anger about injustice, anger about uh, the effects of sin and Satan is a good and righteous anger. And so Paul says, be angry, but be angry and do not sin. So what does he mean here? Paul is teaching us not to harbor anger against other believers. Or other people. See, because when we remain angry with someone, it becomes divisive and becomes isolating as we push them away, as we withdraw from them, and this is the opposite of what Christ has done in uniting us to himself, right? He spent three chapters explaining the unity that he's brought to the body of Christ, the walls that he's brought down. Jew and Gentile are now one new person in Christ. He's done an amazing work to bring unity and diversity that's unified to the body of Christ. He's broken down walls. He's overcome so much sin. He's put to death sin. He's brought new life. He's done all these things for us. But when we become angry with one another, And inevitably leads to isolation. It leads to withdrawal. And he's saying here uh, that the thought is to, uh, as he instructs the Ephesian people to not let the sun go down upon their anger, the thought is to reconcile as quickly as possible, even if that means the same day, so as not to let that anger build that anger fester, that anger multiply into things that are more harmful than the anger was in the first place. And he'll he'll revisit that. We'll see the natural progression of what anger leads to uh, in just a moment. But the principle here is, we see that he instructs us uh, in verse uh, 27 to not give any opportunity to the devil. The principle here is the devil wants to hinder the reconciling work of Christ from being known, seen, and experienced. And among God's people, the best hope he has at that is for us to remain angry with one another. Because when I'm angry, I don't wanna reconcile. When I'm angry, I don't wanna see that person. When I'm angry, I don't wanna speak to that person. When I'm angry, I don't wanna hear their apology. When I'm angry, I don't wanna forgive them at all, right? How have you experienced anger against another believer? Whether that be a spouse, whether that be a child, whether that be somebody in your community, whether that be somebody in the church, whether that be somebody outside of the church, how have you experienced anger against another? And how has holding on to that anger affected your unity inside of those relationships? Third principle we see here is that we should put off stealing and put on earning. Verse 28 tells us to put off stealing, put on earning. I won't spend a significant amount of time here as we've talked about earning and we'll talk about earning a little bit more this fall. But Paul is encouraging us here to not take things from people that aren't ours or that we have not earned. To do so is robbing them of something that rightfully belongs to them. And so as as I thought about this as I came to this principle, the other three was like, yeah, I can find fault in my life at every turn, at every angle with almost every person that I've ever interacted with, with the other ones. We got to the stealing and earning and I sat back kind of self-righteously and says, ah, oh, I got that down. I don't steal from people. I'm honest in all my things. And then I started thinking a little bit more about times maybe throughout my past where uh, I've, I've said some things about something that stole a little bit of dignity from somebody Where I've, I've been given a little bit more change at a cash register than what I was owed. And instead of taking it back and just sliding it into my pocket, stealing things that were not mine that I did not earn dishonestly. Talking about, did I, have I ever, uh, you know, told a little white lie in my expenditures and, and my write-offs and my taxes? I'm sure I have. You know what I mean? Have I, have I robbed God? Like, is there stealing that are happening in my life? Have I robbed God of tithes and offerings that he's asked me to give back to him in a glorious way, like Malachi chapter number three tells me? As I examine these, this one became the one that I wasn't worried about. Maybe I should be worried about. As we take things that aren't ours, we do so dishonestly. And Paul's encouraging these people as new believers in Christ that are part of this new humanity, that are part of this new community to put off stealing, put on earning. But the principle uh, is, is, is interesting to me too. Paul's saying to work honestly, to earn honestly, don't steal from people. But why does he tell us to do that? Verse number 28 tells us, to enable humble giving. Right? And like I said, we spend a lot of time digging through our perspective on work, our perspective on money, so we won't, we won't revisit that too much. But as we're working, even if we're working honestly, what is our motivation for working? Paul says as new people, unified to, to Christ and unified to one another, we are to work honestly, earn honestly, don't steal, but we're not to do so to increase our stature, increase our position, but to make other lives better. We're to earn, to give our stuff away, right? So we look at this. What are some areas in your life in which you've been dishonest with your possessions? And then if if you are earning, if you're earning honestly, and you're not stealing from anybody, are you earning for the sake of giving or are you earning for the sake of selfish gain. Let's look at the fourth principle. Paul encourages us in verse number 29, to put off corrupting talk and put on constructive talk. Put off corrupting talk and put on constructive talk. Paul, many times throughout his writings and even multiple times here in Ephesians, encourages us to build up with our words and not tear people down with our words. Words can be extremely powerful things, can they not? They can, be, they can have a tremendous impact on our emotions, tremendous impact on our relationships. They can change the way we think about someone or something. They can uh, uh, cause anger, stir up anxiety, anger inside of us as a result of another person. Words have tremendous power in our lives. And Paul's encouraging us to put off words that are corrupting. The, the language here for uh, uh, corrupting talk is this idea of rotten, like rotten food. It's, it's, it's putrid, it's insane, it smells, it looks obnoxious, it's unhealthy. It, it, it eats away like mold eating away at food that's left out. It's, it's that kind of corruption right? And as we tear people down, as we speak things that are uh, are corrupting and, and seek to destroy instead of things that seek to construct and build up, Paul says to put off that old man, put on the new man. Why? The principle here is so that those who hear your words are shown grace are shown grace. We should be a people, a new people living in a new community that extend grace, extend the grace of Jesus to people by the very words that we say, right? And so are we extending words of grace to people when we talk about it? And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Are you, building or tearing, are you building up or tearing down with your words? Then we move on to verse 31 through 32. This is the last principle. Put off bitterness and put on forgiveness. Put off bitterness, put on forgiveness, verse 31 through 32. This is where anger ultimately leads. Why is Paul instructing uh, the Ephesian people and instructing us to not let sun sun go down on our anger, to not let anger build, but to make reconciliation? Because as we become angry, and if anger is left undealt with, anger begins to consume us, and anger ultimately turns to bitterness. And Paul is instructing us to put off bitterness and put on forgiveness. He's encouraging believers to live a life of forgiveness and not a life of bitterness. He goes on to explain what bitterness looks like. He uses words like anger, wrath, clamor, slander, and malice, all to describe what do, uh, what is bitterness audibly look like? How does bitterness work itself out in our life? It works itself out in all these ways. Wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. So let's ask ourselves, as we're saying things, are we saying things that would identify as these things? Do we speak with malice? Are we using words that slander another person? Are we wrathful? Are we clamoring? Are we filled with anger? in the way that we're talking. Why is it such a big deal? Because bitterness is destructive. It's destructive to the bitter person. It's destructive to the unity of the church. Bitterness always leaves collateral damage. It always leads collateral damage. Hebrews chapter number 12, verse 15 says this, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. As bitterness wells up in our heart, it, does, it can't help but to overflow into uh, the relationship that we have within our house. It outflows to the relationships we have without our house. It, it's divisive. It's like a cancer that eats at our hearts and eats at our souls and eats at our lives. It divides, it isolates, it separates does all those things inside the church. So Paul's encouragement is to put off bitterness and put on forgiveness. And in forgiveness, we see the principle. We forgive because Christ has forgiven us. So we look at the wrongs that have been done to us in comparison to the wrongs that we've caused Christ. He's forgiven us much more than we have reason to forgive other people. And he's saying, use that as fuel, use that as energy, use that as an example, use that as victory to be able to lay aside hurt, to lay aside bitterness and forgive people as Christ has forgiven you. These practical exhortation that Paul gives us are to be walked out in this new community that Christ has united together as he has united his people to himself, right? Are we getting that? Like when, 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 when Paul spends three chapters talking about unity, talking about who we are in Christ, building that up, and then he spends all of chapter four talking about how unity practically plays out. As he comes to a close in chapter number four, he's teaching us that these things, these principles, these prohibitions, these uh, uh, exhortations are to be lived out day to day as new people because we are new people in Christ, but we're also part of a new community of believers. That's how this is supposed to work itself out. So we see in summary... Unity is such an important thing and such a big theme inside the church in Ephesians. And he'll go on in chapters five and in chapter six to talk about how that unity gets played out very personally in different relationships. As we'll look at what it means to be a husband and a wife, what it means to be a parent and a child, what it means to be an employee and a boss, Right? He's gonna give us some real practical things to sink our teeth in to understand what unity looks like in relationships. But in summary today, we see that sin that disrupts unity in the church grieves the Spirit of God, grieves how we grieve when something is lost. As unity is disrupted and unity is lost amongst this new community of Bible-believing people that God has united together in the work of the Son, when that's not playing out, and disunity is being sown and discord is being sown and harshness is being held onto, bitterness is being held onto. When we're speaking to each other in harsh words, when we're unforgiving of one another, it grieves the spirit of God who has in his work united us together through the finished work of Jesus, right? As redeemed people in Christ, we are placed into a new community of believers where our unity with Jesus is understood in our unity within that new community, right? And we've been attacking this week after week because Paul attacks it week after week. You cannot be an isolated Christian. As a new believer, God has placed you inside of this new community. So you can't just continue going on and living the Christian life faithfully according to the principles of God as someone who stays disconnected from the body of Christ. Because it's within that body, within the unity of that body, do we really seek to practically and tangibly in a way that we can sink our teeth to understand what unity with Jesus looks like. Because it gets played out interpersonally between you and I. Why is this so important? Our gospel conviction this morning is this. It's important because Christ makes his character and his glory known through the unified and faithful practice of righteousness among his people. God, Christ makes his character and his glory known through the unified and faithful practice of righteousness among his people. Look back with me in verse 24, if you will. It says, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This new self is created in the image of God. So when we behave as Christ has behaved, it puts on display his character, his glory, his name. Then verse 5-1 goes on to tell us, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. When we walk faithfully, Enter the righteousness given to us by Christ as new believers inside of this new community. We're saying with loud flashing signs, hey, this is what it looks like to know and follow Jesus. This is what the character of God looks like as I'm speaking with gentleness, as I'm earning honestly, as I'm doing all these things, and as I'm putting off things like anger, slander, stealing, falsehood to continue living in the sins of our old man keeps us tied to a life that we no longer live. It's deceptive. It's presenting a falsehood. As we are new creatures created in the image of God to reflect the character of God for the glory of God. But this doesn't come in the form of moralism, right? As we seek as we read texts like this, where it's really practically talking about how we should behave, we need to understand that this isn't moralistic behavior. Moralism says I will be a good person to get a good thing, right? I will do good works, I will try to earn, I will try to do everything I can to earn my place in God's family, to earn my place as a part of this body. Moralism is I'm going to do enough good to eventually one day become good right? But Paul's not talking about moralism here. He spent three chapters building us up in Christ. He spent three chapters unboxing the identity that we have in Christ. Now he's moved on to our activity because of our identity in Christ, right? And so this isn't moralistic behavior. This is just Christian obedience because of the grace and the mercy of God that's been extended to us. Christian obedience looks different than moralism because Christian obedience says, I will do good things because I've already been made good. Christ has made us good as he's exchanged our sinfulness for his righteousness. Then he's given us this text. He's given us this spirit of Holy Spirit that moves and works in us and through us so that we can begin living out who we now are. Right? So it's not a a working for good standing. It's a working from good standing. We've been given the standing as a result of the work of Christ. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk it out. And so now Paul is instructing us on how to walk it out. Christ is our victory, securing our righteousness. Christ is our example, displaying his righteousness. He overcame death, And he overcame sin as he died and resurrected from the dead. Walking out of the grave, he gave us new life. And then he left the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk as new creations with new behaviors inside of a new community for the glory of God and for the good of other people. That's what he's talking about here. The the death, burial, and resurrection secured our place exchanged our righteousness and has now given us the spirit of God because of the empty tomb, because of the risen savior to walk this new identity out. And as we exercise righteousness inside of this new community, united to Christ, it will have missional impact on our surrounding culture. Because as we do this, inside the church and invite people from outside the church inside of it. They begin to see what the grace and the mercy of God look like as we extend it to one another, as we extend it to them with kindness, with forgiveness, with gentleness, with words that build up instead of words that tear down. So our gospel response looks like this. Some of this will be really quick and just a recap of some things we've already said but I wanted to package it here so that it's clearly understood. In response to the gospel, in response to this new identity secured for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and according to these principles that Paul has now given these, his church to walk in righteousness because of Christ's righteousness, here's what we should do. We should engage honestly in all areas of our life. As we examine life, we just need to be honest with our life with our finances, with our time, with our energy, with our talents, with our relationships. Just engage all of life with complete and open honesty. This builds intimacy inside of your marriage. This builds closeness amongst your friends. This builds gospel unity amongst this community, right? Being honest. Nobody likes being lied to. Nobody likes being deceived. Be honest, be an open book. Don't hide things. Don't steal things. Don't present yourself as something that you are not, right? That's what what Paul was getting at. Put away falsehood, put on truthfulness. And then this, this, this summarizes a couple of the principles above. We should express grace with all of our words. Express grace with all of our words. Extend the grace of Jesus to others with your words. Give life to those who hear what you're saying instead of taking and draining life from them. Words are powerful. Use them to extend grace. Here's how we can do this. First, consider the type of the words that you speak. Consider the type of the words that you speak. Build people up in Christ. Don't tear them down. Be constructive, not destructive with your words. Don't say things that are malicious. Don't say things that are slandering. Don't say things that are unkind. But use your words carefully to build people up, not tear people down, right? Consider the type of words. Consider the tone of the words you speak. Consider the tone of the words you speak because we've all experienced interactions with people And sometimes we've been participants of those interactions where what we were saying or how we were saying what we were saying was speaking so loudly, the words that we were saying couldn't even be heard. Did you catch that? How we were saying what we were saying was speaking so loudly, the words that we were saying could not be heard because of our tone. We were angry when we we should have been loving. We were condescending when we should have been accepting. We were uh, 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 bitter when we should have been forgiving. And all these things come out in the way that we use our words and how we say what we say. We can say the most truthful and loving things. If we say it with anger and yelling and bitterness, it doesn't sound very truthful. It doesn't sound very loving, right? And so the, the, the heart of the message gets lost in translation because of the tone of the words that we're using. Speak with kindness and gentleness out of love and genuine concern for those you are speaking to. We all have experienced that, right? There are people in our lives who've earned the right to say even some pretty harsh things to us, right? Their love has been felt, their love has been acknowledged, their love has been received. They have earned the right to be heard saying almost anything that they want. But when people genuinely understand that you don't care about them, even the kind things become condescending. Even those take on a a special tone. So dig in deep with people. Love them well. Share truth, even in a way that it can be received. Does that make sense? And then consider the timing of your words. Consider the timing of your words. Verse 29, Paul uses this language as he's talking about the way that we're speaking with none another. He says, put off, um, put off, uh, let me see what I put. Put off corrupting talk and put on constructive talk. He tells us to do it as fits the occasion. Proverbs fifteen twenty three talks about a word spoken in a season, comma, how good it is. A word spoken in a season, what's that saying? He's saying the right words at the right time can have deep, meaningful impact in our lives. And I'm learning this, I'm learning this, I'm understanding this Uh, interpersonally with people that I work with on a daily basis, the way that they hear and receive words sometimes is, is about timing. I can say really great things, but if the timing's not right, they're not heard as really great things, they're heard as bad things. And so I'm trying to grow in, when is it right time to be constructive and give criticism? When is the right time to call somebody to repentance? When is the right time to build them up, love them, talk about the grace and the mercy of God and point them to Jesus in all of it, right? Use timing of your words. When you say something, when you say something and how you say something can be just as important as what you're actually saying. Let's be mindful of that. And then lastly, extend forgiveness as you've been forgiven. Extend forgiveness as you have been forgiven. Be slow to hold grudges. Be quick to forgive. It is vital to the unity inside of your home. It is vital to the unity inside of your workplace. It is vital to the unity inside of the church. If we're not a people who are quick to forgive, it'll eat at us and it'll have Damage that is collateral and widespread. At the end of the day, when wrongs have been done to us or our wrongs have been done to other people, we have a couple options. We either pay for the wrongs and that looks like bitterness, right? Bitterness is we're trying to pay for the wrongs that somebody's committed against us or people's bitterness towards us is them trying to pay for the wrongs committed against them, so we'll pay for the wrongs we've done, that looks like bitterness. We'll make them pay for the wrongs they've done. And that looks like revenge when I want to get back at somebody, right? Or, or we'll know, understand, and experience Jesus has already paid for their wrongs. And if we try to pay for it, if they, we make them try to pay for it, it builds bitterness, it brings revenge, it brings anger but when Jesus is the one who has paid for it, we can see redemption. We can see reconciliation. We can see unity maintained, unity extended. We can see grace and forgiveness. Forgiveness puts on display the reconciling work of Jesus in a way that very few things ever can. When we forgive, we're showing the person that we are forgiving how Christ has forgiven us. Vitally important, vitally important. In closing, we'll say this. Paul isn't instructing us to do these things so that we'll just become better and more moral people. He's not doing it so that we'll cross all the T's and dots all the I's in the Christian life, but he's teaching us these things so that we'll reflect the image, the character, and the glory of God to one another and to the watching world around us. Honesty, grace, grace, forgiveness are things that are a bit lost inside of our culture are they not and when we practice these things we introduce our unbelieving friends our unbelieving coworkers our unbelieving neighbors to Jesus and let Jesus radically change their life i want to invite Brianna and Jordan back up to begin preparations for leading us in singing through the gospel in response today We've given you three ways in which you could respond. The first is through prayer. We wanna invite you to pray in your seat or with one of the prayer team members that will be to my right, to my left. Just come up and, and they'd love to pray with you or you can use your Connect card that you were given on the way in. If you weren't given one, there's some up here. You can write on a Connect card what it is you're praying about. I'd love to pray with you this week. I'd love to reach out to you if you'd like that. You can write that there um, as well. Giving, I invite you to respond by giving. I invite you to give worshiply because when we do, we're declaring that Jesus rules our life and our things don't. When we hold on to things that Jesus didn't mean for us to hold on to, we begin worshiping them. They begin ruling us. And so we give generously, we give worshiply, we give regularly, we give sacrificially because Jesus rules us and our things do not. So I invite you to give today. Communion. Invite you this morning to come to the table by faith believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as your salvation, as your spiritual nourishment for the work of the ministry and for the source of strength for your spiritual growth. If you come declaring Jesus for those things and not yourself, we invite you to come. If you're still trying to work those things out in your own strength, in your own way, just ask you just to stay seated. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about these things. But this is for believers and followers of Jesus to come and be nourished and be reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I wanna invite you to participate in a confession corporally as a body. So where we declare our sin and our desperate need for Jesus. You can participate this morning by the reading of the underlying portions. Lord, we cry to you to heal our broken lives and grant us forgiveness. We have sinned against you and have sinned against one another in words and deeds. We confess that we have disobeyed your word and perpetually failed to live out your will. We pray, purge our lives of selfishness and our hearts of bitterness. Lead us back to righteousness through the work of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna pray and then, Jordan and Brianna will continue leading us uh, in singing through the gospel in our time of response. After I pray, please feel free to respond as you feel led. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your goodness extended to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I pray that. Your words today would find resting place in our heart that that we would practically apply the truths and the principles found and contained within it, not to uh, secure for ourselves redemption, not to secure for ourselves good moral standing, not to secure for ourselves an identity that's different from the one we've got, but because of your work, through the new identity that you've given us in this new community that you've placed us in, May we walk in a way that puts on display your glory, that makes famous your name, that encourages both those believers sitting next to us and our lost neighbors across the street, that they would come to you through faith and repentance, that we again would come to you even today in response to your gospel with faith and repentance. Help us to be an obedient people for your glory and our joy, amen.